This podcast is going to be for the skeptics, those people who think that mold avoidance is crazy. Now, let me tell you something. We were all there before. I mean, I encountered mold avoidance 20 years ago on a website that was just very obscure, beginning of the internet, when I was just starting to get really sick, and I thought it was crazy. So I feel for you. Let's just start there. And I also want to start this off by saying that all of us who have recovered from mold avoidance did it reluctantly. We sort of ran out of options and we backed into this therapy or we had what's called an accidental mold sabbatical where we weren't even trying to find out about mold and it happened on accident. If you don't know, the mold sabbatical is a procedure where you leave your house, you leave your belongings for a while, a couple of weeks and you get clear, you don't bring your car, you don't bring all your stuff, and then when you go back to your house, your house makes you sick. And that's how you know to start looking into mold. That happened to me accidentally. I didn't even try. And then when I got started with mold avoidance, the, the whole first year or two, I was completely in denial. I didn't listen to any of the experienced mold avoiders. I made up all of my own rules. I got myself into a lot of trouble and slowed the whole process down, but that is also very normal. So take heart. You're not alone. It happened to all of us. I don't always base my podcasts on my own personal story because I know that's only just an audience of one or a sample size of one. It's not very scientific or convincing, but I'm going to start this episode off with my story and then sort of weave in some other facts for you. I think my story is a little bit authoritative because I have written five books on Lyme disease that have sold over 100,000 copies. I've gone to all of the big conferences and conventions. I've published a lot of big name doctors and researchers. I have been given $20,000 Lyme disease treatments for free by clinics who wanted me as a healthcare journalist to come cover their therapy and share it on my blog. So I have kind of a unique role in the Lyme disease community. I'm not saying that I'm special or that because I'm a sample size of one, you should listen to me, but I've been through quite a bit, done a lot, spent over a million dollars of my own money on Lyme disease treatment since 2002. And then a lot of other people's money who gave me free treatments and stuff. So the first thing that I will say is that Lyme disease is very real. I don't dispute. And this goes for chronic fatigue syndrome too, if you're listening and you have chronic fatigue syndrome. I don't dispute the existence of those diseases. I don't dispute that Lyme disease is caused by Borrelia and it has co-infections <clears throat> or that chronic fatigue syndrome you know, is possibly caused by a virus. I'm not a chronic fatigue expert, so I'm not going to go into that. None of that is in dispute. The question is, why do those things not go away when you treat the living daylights out of them, right? It's kind of funny to me that Lyme doctors acknowledge that Lyme disease is multifaceted and is a thousand variables at once. Like if you go to a Lyme disease conference, they talk about you need to detox, you need to supplement nutrients, you need to kill the infections, you need to do genetics, you need to do... I mean, it's endless. The list of things that they say are involved. But they're blinded to the possibility that one variable might be the thing that is holding people back. It's like they acknowledge all these variables, but then the degree to which each variable gets a weighting or gets prioritized is totally arbitrary and based on 
fads, right? I mean, stick with me here. Think about how silly this is. If you're going to talk about in chronic chronic fatigue syndrome too, as well as Lyme disease, if you're going to talk about, you know, how much does detox matter? How much does killing infections matter? How much does epigenetics matter? You will get a different answer from 10 different doctors. It's literally just what they feel like doing or what they make the most money on. And it changes every year. So it shouldn't really surprise you guys who are listening. I'm talking to the skeptics now. You're listening to this. You're a skeptic. You think mold avoidance is ridiculous. It shouldn't really surprise you guys that there does end up being one missing variable. This is very common in medicine that it's like a bop the weasel situation where nobody can figure it out until somebody discovers the master variable and then the health problem is solved, right? If you look all throughout history, I'm I'm not going to name all of them because then you guys will have to listen to an even longer podcast. But when there are medical mysteries that have multi-systemic presentations, sometimes you find that aha moment where you realize one variable is more important. I'll give just one example. Sailors at sea getting limeys. And coincidence here, we're talking about a different kind of Lyme disease here, you know, L-I-M-E, the fruit. Um, You know, the sailors at sea were getting really sick and then it was later discovered that they were vitamin C deficient, right? That was a single variable that was missing, vitamin C. As soon as you add, as soon as you take care of that variable, um, the problem goes away. And even when they were out on that boat floating around in the ocean, they might have found little things that helped, maybe laying down, maybe, you know, not eating certain foods, but it was all just BS until they discovered that vitamin C was the culprit, right? That's what I mean by a master variable. So what mold avoiders have learned in a nutshell is that mold, which Lyme doctors already talk about, it's a huge thing at all the conferences. They, oh, you got to go through, you got to leave mold. You got to get out of a moldy apartment. It's all true. But the thing that we discovered that isn't widely recognized is just how deep that rabbit hole goes. That is the master variable. So listen to this, you guys. Do the logic with me here, okay? Lyme disease patients will do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they will get benefits. They will get results. They'll do a little detox, a little sauna. They'll be like, I feel a little better. They'll do a little antibiotics, little herbs. They'll be like, oh yeah, I feel a little better. They'll do a little bit of mold avoidance. They'll go and get a new apartment and throw away their belongings. They'll go, oh yeah, I feel a little better, right? And if they continue to do antibiotics, the antibiotics will stop working. If they, Of course, they'll stop working or else the people would all be cured. If they continue to do saunas, the saunas will stop working. If they continue to do hyperbaric oxygen, it'll stop working. That's a very common situation with Lyme disease patients is everything helps a little bit and then it stops working. Uh, that's also why the doctors can keep everyone hooked and going back because it's all just a little bit helpful. Most people never try doing more mold avoidance. They do a little bit of mold avoidance and it helps. They feel better. Um, and then they, they just treat it just like any other thing. Oh, well, that helped a little bit. I'll move on to the next thing. It's very rare that anyone has experimented with doing more mold avoidance. It's like, what if this is the master variable? What if mold is so dangerous to Lyme disease and chronic fatigue patients? It's such the primary variable that you keep getting benefit the more you do it. And it's like endless. You could do it for like five years and just keep getting more and more scrupulous or intentional about avoiding mold. And every step you take 
the benefit doesn't diminish. It's like mind-blowing, you guys. I mean, nobody thinks about this because everybody, Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, everybody's so trained that the treatments only work for a little while. I, you will hear it in everybody's voice. I, t- I just talked to a new person this morning, which actually inspired this podcast episode. Her daughter is very sick and she recognizes that she does better in certain locations, in certain houses, right? It's right there in front of her. But she puts it in the same pile, the same category as other things that she's done a little bit better on, right? Like she puts that in the same category. Like, oh yeah, well, I took this one supplement last month and it made me a little better. And I don't blame her. None of us have any knowledge or reason to believe that mold avoidance is the one rabbit hole that goes all the way down to the bottom. I like to use the word rabbit hole because it's like each one of these treatments is like a rabbit hole that you can jump down into and you can go as far down as you want to go. For example, if your doctor prescribes herbs to you, you can take those herbs for a week or you can take them for five years and just keep going, right? But that's what I'm trying to say is that most Lyme disease patients and chronic illness patients never go all the way down the rabbit hole and they shouldn't go all the way down the rabbit hole with most of these treatments because they stop working. We have systematically trained chronic illness patients not to go all the way down the rabbit hole because nothing works long term. So by the time someone's been doing this for 10, 20, for me, it was about 22 years, your brain trains you to know that once you start to plateau in benefit from any given treatment, once there's a plateau or there's a pause that you should just move on to the next thing. That, that, because that's all that's ever worked for you. It's like bop the weasel. You're barely in balance. That's why you see these Lyme disease patients spending millions of dollars, right? I talked to this lady. She's like, oh yeah, we spent $500,000. Think about it logically. In order to spend $500,000, that literally means that you're bouncing from thing to thing to thing. So keep an open mind that mold may be the one thing that if you pull that lever and you keep going down that rabbit hole, it solves all the problems. Now, I know you're not convinced because this is a podcast for skeptics. That's fine. But you at least have to keep an open mind. Logically speaking, there is a possibility that there is one single thing, just like the vitamin C on the boats, that is keeping chronic illness patients from getting better. It's a possibility. You cannot say it's not a possibility. So you have to at least be with me on this intellectual journey and have the open mind that there is a single thing. Now, one other muck in the ointment, fly in the ointment, that is a huge problem is that in order to pursue mold avoidance all the way down the rabbit hole, it's a lot harder than other treatments. So even fewer people do it. I mean, the premise that, oh, well, you know, even moving to a different apartment across the street isn't enough. Or maybe you have the outdoor mold supertoxins in your region that have kept many of us sick that um, you have to leave your region for a while or forever. Um, that's harder than taking a supplement. That's harder than doing a sauna. That's harder than doing herbs and antibiotics. So it's even it's an even smaller subgroup of people who ever pursue that naturally, it's only going to be the most desperate people who have stopped getting all benefit from other treatments. They're basically at the end of the rope. They're ready to delete themselves, if you'll excuse the the language. And they are like, 
well, I got nothing to lose. And then they end up kind of stumbling down this rabbit hole and going all the way to the bottom and getting their lives back, getting their health back, seeing decades old health problems just disappear. So if you're, if you're brand new to mold avoidance, um, if you're a skeptic, that's why that's who this podcast is targeted for. Um, the premise of mold avoidance in a nutshell, just so I can kind of summarize it for you, if you're brand new is that as, okay, well, first of all, it's that certain people, not everyone, but certain people's bodies cannot detox mold adequately. And if you spend time in too much mold, it builds up in your body as a toxicity. It's not an allergy. It literally builds up until it's flooding all of your organs and your systems and it disables your immune system completely. And the longer you spend in mold, the less able to sense it you become. It's just like gluten sensitivity or celiac disease, right? People don't know they're celiac. They eat bread and, and they don't feel any different, right? It's only when they avoid the bread for a while and then they feel better, then they go back to the bread and they're like, oh, that gave me a stomachache and diarrhea. Maybe I'm celiac. That's how mold works too. We advise people to do this thing called a mold sabbatical where they take a break from mold. Um, I'm not going to go into all the protocol. You can read about how to do a mold sabbatical in Lisa Petrison's book. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Mold Avoidance. You can get it on her website, Google Paradigm Change Mold Avoidance or something like that. You can download the book from her. So the premise is that we are very mold toxic and there are mold toxins out there. Not all of them. People say, oh, you can't avoid all mold. That's ridiculous. You're right. You can't. There are a few very specific types of mold that are like kryptonite or like nuclear radiation. I'm trying to paint a picture here of how damaging they are to us. And if you can learn how to sense them, again, I know that's you, it requires a degree of skepticism, but think about it. A celiac knows when they've been hit by, by gluten, right? Think about it. They go to a restaurant, they order off the gluten-free menu, they accidentally put gluten in their meal, in their food, and then the next day they're like, oh man, I got, a, I got a gluten hit, right? Like, I'm so sick, I'm in bed. You don't question that. So why would you question the same exact phenomenon with mold avoiders who say they've been exposed to a supertoxin and now they need to recover or they, you know, it's the same thing, right? So we already have an established scientific pattern for this. So you can't be too skeptical. Don't have irrational skepticism. That makes no sense. So the premise is, and I, this would take hours to describe, so you can thank me later for boiling this down into a simple, you know, 15 minutes. The premise is that when you learn how to sense that, just like a celiac patient learns how to sense um, that they've been exposed to gluten, you can effectively avoid the bad kinds of mold and get recover your health. Now, we don't necessarily know. Now, I know I'm, I'm addressing this to the skeptics, so I'm going to try to go on all these tangents that you're probably thinking if you're a skeptic. We don't necessarily know the species of the worst molds that are the, the biggest offenders. So you're going to say, well, show me evidence. Show me a biology test. Does a celiac patient need to know what gluten is in order to avoid it and stay well? No. They just are like, oh, well, there's this stuff out there that's in some bread it makes me really sick and I should stay away from it. You don't need to know that it's called gluten. You don't need to know the scientific name for it, right? It helps to know. It's a good idea to know. I'm not saying it's not, but you don't need to know. And that's the phase we are at with mold avoidance. That's why testing one's house or one's 
you know, people say, oh, how do I test my apartment? How do I test my house? There are, are not good tests. Yes, you can do a mold test. Sure, it can confirm that there's a lot of mold overgrowth. That's great. That'll help you a clue. But many of us walk into a house or a building, we sleep there for a couple nights and we start to get sick and we're like, oh, it has the stuff, the stuff in quotes, right? The bad stuff, just like celiac patients are like, we've been exposed to the bad stuff. We, we need to not eat at that restaurant anymore. It's the same exact thing, guys, same thing. It's not that outlandish to think of, to think this. This is not claiming that aliens landed on earth and abducted us and implanted robots in our blood and that's why we're sick. It's simply an undiscovered toxin that is more damaging to us than anyone realizes, right? And once the celiac patient removes celiac from their diet, they can gain their weight back, their brain fog goes away, their energy comes back. It's miraculous, right? I had a friend, my wife's friend, who was like the maid of honor in her wedding. She was celiac and she told me all about her before and after experiences when she... um, finally realized that she was celiac and she was like, I'm a new person. You know, it's, I thought I I was never going to be able to get married. I always had to stay within 20 minutes of a bathroom. It was horrible. My intestines were so inflamed that I was always starving. All this stuff just went away. Boom. One thing. So don't tell me that one thing can't solve the problems. These Lyme disease patients and chronic fatigue syndrome patients have been brainwashed to think there's so many things wrong with them. You got to do a little bit of hormones. You got to do a little bit of nutritional balancing. You got to do a little yoga, a little self-actualization, a little meditation. Oh, this health problem has been brought into your life to make you a better person. It's okay to be chronically sick. Um, you know, you got to trust this this next doctor or this next conference. I got news for you. You have to keep an open mind that those things might be wrong and there might be a singular thing. That is what uh, those of us who have done mold avoidance have discovered, a singular thing that was causing our problems. It was an inconvenient thing. Nobody's arguing that, right? If you think it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous for somebody to not even be able to have stable housing or have to maybe leave a region that has an outdoor mold supertoxin that's been keeping them sick, you know, or maybe in the early mold avoidance, you think it's ridiculous that they have to throw away their clothing in their tent and get a new car. It's ridiculous. I agree with you. It's completely ridiculous, but that's not scientific. Just because it's ridiculous doesn't mean it's not true, right? Just because it's ridiculous doesn't mean it's not true. It's also ridiculous that a tiny portion of the population can't eat bread and they have to have a special diet and carry around their own meals. And, and, you know, that's it. it, Does it matter if it's ridiculous? No, the word ridiculous isn't a scientific word. It's either factual or it isn't. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit of the premise of why we think these molds have gotten so bad and why they're causing chronic Lyme and chronic fatigue syndrome to not go away. Now, this is just a scientific hypothesis that some of the great thinkers in mold avoidance have come up with. It's not necessarily proven. It's not peer-reviewed. But we know that mold can eat just about anything. It, it is found inside. This is factual, this part. It is found inside nuclear power plants And there are certain molds that can eat the radiation in the nuclear power plants and produce a radioactive mycotoxin, a radioactive mold toxin. That's what mold does. It cleans up the environment. It's the great cleanser. It can eat anything. You see it on decomposing wood. You see it on, you know, rotting food. Mold just plows through whatever is out there and 
uh, eats it and, and, you know, cleans it up, okay? Modern society has produced a lot of chemicals. You know that. Pollution, all the toxicity in our world. The hypothesis is that the reason there are certain places and certain houses that have really bad mold is that the mold is eating some particularly toxic chemicals as it does. It cleans up the world. And then those of us who can't detox mold, those chemicals sort of slam the hell out of us because they're combined with a mycotoxin. It's the one-two punch of mold plus mycotoxins. This is why it can be so arbitrary where these supertoxins are found. They might be in one city, not another city. And you might be thinking as a skeptic, that makes no sense. Why can the person be in city A, but not city B? This is ridiculous, right? For all we know, city A used some dry cleaning chemical that got into their sewer system. This is actually a a real hypothesis that some of us have. And that's the chemical plus the mold that does the damage. And the city B, even though it looks the same, the buildings are all the same, the skeptics are like, this makes no sense. Um, It's not present in those other areas. Okay, so that's one of the working hypotheses. And it sort of explains, it might be wrong, but it sort of explains why we experience this as we do. Um, When we... Uh, one last, I could just go on and on about this. If you if you really are a skeptic, you should listen to some of my other podcast episodes because I am very much, you know, outwardly driven in sharing about mold avoidance because I have like thousands of Lyme disease sufferers who have read my books. So I'm very interested in being an evangelist for this or, or you know, shouting from the rooftops to save all the people who think they had Lyme disease. Um, and if you say, oh, well, why'd you write all those books if you didn't get better? I did get better. Everything I talk about in all the books that I wrote on Lyme disease did help me, but it was always a balancing act of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I bought into that and I wrote books about the little bit of this or the little bit of that that helped me just enough to go back to work for six months and then I crashed again. Or, you know, that's why I spent a million dollars, guys. I was just like everyone else. I bought into it and I did a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then I wrote books about the ones that helped me. Um, but it was just still not enough. I was stabilized for a few years and then I took a a leg down and then I was stabilized for a few years. And then I took another step down until I was so low turned out from being in a moldy house that I had to do mold avoidance. Okay. So the last point I really want to make is just think about logically how much extreme mold avoidance must be helping people. Let me walk you through a little bit of a logical scenario. If you think mold avoidance is the placebo effect, or it's ridiculous, or it's probably not helping as much as people say it is, okay? We already know that Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome people are not very susceptible to the placebo effect, right? Like, it doesn't work on us. Think about it. If the placebo effect worked so well for us, And if you're thinking that the mold avoidance is a placebo effect, right? Um, When we went to that fancy new doctor and he, we sat in his beautiful office and he gave us this shiny bottle of supplements and this protocol that he put us on that we spent $10,000 on. And we got home to our sick house and we were so excited to, um, you know, finally start this miracle protocol and get our health back. And, you know, the first day we organized ourselves and we put everything into a schedule and we 
took that first supplement with, with hope and optimism and we waited to get better and we never did. Don't you think that would have been when the placebo effect would have shown up to save the day, right? Why is it? You explain to me, you're the skeptic. Why is it that all of a sudden, miraculously, out of nowhere, the placebo effect shows up to save the day with mold avoidance, right? Like why? Um, Mold avoidance is more expensive, more inconvenient. We often have to leave cities or regions with people we care about and love. It's horrible in a lot of ways. Why would we bring out our placebo effect problem right when we do the worst, hardest treatment. Like, come on now, if I'm going to get better on the placebo effect, like at least make it like a hundred dollar bottle of supplements that I can do at my old house with all my old friends. Like that would be a lot better, right? It makes no sense. It's not logical to claim that it's the placebo effect. Now you might say, oh, well, you just, you just needed fresh air. It's not the placebo effect, whatever. Fine. I just needed fresh air. But if that were the case, why do we get sick again in certain cities, in certain regions, in certain houses where there's plenty of fresh air? Like you have to look at the facts. If you're going to be a skeptic, that's fine. But you have to at least be a logical skeptic about this and realize that, you know, some of us are driven to crazy extremes in um, how we pursue our mold avoidance and how much of our health we get back. And you can't understand it until you've experienced it. It is really a fully miraculous recovery. I have not, I was extremely sick early on. Um, just one of those desperate people, you know, going to the ER all the time, uncontrollable infections that were taking over my circulatory system, dementia, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't eat food, couldn't recognize my kids' faces anymore. Um, I would go, I went into this foot surgery because I had this chronic bone infection, of course, because my immune system was compromised. And I was hoping that I wouldn't wake up from the anesthesia. That's, that's where I was at. That's where all of us were at. And I'm like 80 to 90% recovered now. And, you know, you might want tests or proof or something like that. Well, I don't have that for you. But I will tell you this, and this is very interesting. It is, I'll leave you with this to ponder. If mold avoidance is so unbelievable and ridiculous, then you tell me why all of the people who have learned how to do this and recovered their health, we all agree about where the bad toxins are. We have discussions about it. Oh yeah, when you're going through Santa Fe, New Mexico, you hit this outdoor toxin at mile marker 43, mile marker 62 and you and it's pretty strong and thick until you get to the opera house and then it dies down and then it's fine right just like celiac patients all agree about their same experience oh yeah don't go to that restaurant it's contaminated with gluten right and they can kind of have their own secret language do they need to test the restaurant do they need to get a loaf of bread and run testing on it to tell if there is gluten in the food? No, their body is their test. It's the same thing. If it was just BS, we would not agree on where these toxins are. It's strikingly um, similar, all of our experiences. Um, Whenever a new person comes into the mold avoidance community, it's always very draining and exhausting for experienced people to help them. And it's not their fault. But the reason it's draining and exhausting is because these people come in 
assuming that you just get to make everything up how you want, which isn't an okay assumption because that's how they've tried to heal for all of these years, right? They have went to 20 different doctors, heard 20 different things. They can't afford 20 protocols. So they just kind of pick and choose one. Like it's like when you go to the health food store with your basket, your shopping basket, and you walk down the aisles and you go, hmm, I'm going to try this, or I'm going to try that supplement, or I'm going to do some juicing, or I'm going to try this, right? It's all personal choice, right? What do I want to do? What's my opinion? And people come to the mold avoidance community with that attitude in the beginning. Everybody did. I did. I'm not pointing the finger. I definitely did. We have been indoctrinated into this idea that there is no truth in healing from chronic illness because there hasn't ever been a truth. It's been like the limeys on the ship sailing across the ocean. I'm sure they resorted to some random stuff to try to get better. Oh, if you hang upside down off the side of the boat, it'll make your headache go away, right? That's the way we all were. So people come to the mold avoidance community with that mindset in the beginning. They're like, yeah, I'll just try this kind of mold avoidance or I'll do this, right? I believe that there's mold inside houses, but I don't believe in the outdoor toxins or whatever their, whatever their shtick is, whatever their thing is. But what I am telling you is that if you talk to the people who have recovered their health and they've done mold avoidance for five years, it's boring conversations. We all agree on everything. It's like, I have friends now who are like this, who myself and maybe a handful of like seven other mold avoiders. We've been five to seven to 10 years into mold avoidance. And all the conversations are boring because we all agree on everything, right? It's totally boring. And we all agree on everything. 100%, very little disagreement. Now, how could that be? Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, keep an open mind. It is because we all discovered Well, I'm not taking credit for the discovery. This mold avoidance was discovered by Eric Johnson. I can talk about him. You can listen to my other podcasts about him. Um, But we all followed in the footsteps of a discovery that was true. Wow. Imagine that. Maybe it's true that we all were made sick by a singular toxin and we learned how to sense that toxin just like celiac patients learned how to sense gluten. We avoided it enough that we recovered We are very proficient and skilled now in detecting it and avoiding it. And there's nothing really left to talk about. A table of 20 gluten celiac patients who have been celiac for 20 years and they've all learned how to correct their diets and stay healthy. That's probably a pretty boring conversation, right? They're like, oh, you should try this gluten-free bread from the bakery down the street. It's really good. The other one would say, oh, yeah, I, I eat there all the time. It's great. Okay, now what do you want to talk about? It's not very confident. There's nothing, there's nothing to talk about. Because it works, guys. It works. And once you plow through your brain, through all of the choose-your-own-adventure garbage, which is what most Lyme and chronic fatigue patients come from, that choose-your-own-adventure, we don't really know it works, try to go to 20 different conferences and 17 different therapies. If there's one thing that drives me crazy more than anything in trying to help new mold avoiders, because I do try to help. I'm not a doctor, so I don't tell them what to do, but I try to point them into proper resources and point them to books and point them to you know, where to research, right? The thing that is the hardest for me that I probably am going to retire from this community altogether and, and go scream and, you know, never come back. It is the idea that people have when they come into the community 
that they just get to make it up as I go, as they go. Everybody I talk to has a different little slant in the beginning of mold avoidance. They're like, well, yeah, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do it. But what, what that part says. And it's maddening because mold avoidance boils down to a truth, a discovery, a fact, an observation of nature, just like celiac does. I hate to keep boring you guys with celiac, but I really like that example because it helps people who don't understand mold avoidance to comprehend what's going on. Um, any celiac patient who has their own ideas and their own made up story will learn pretty darn quickly that that's not how it works. Celiac is like a bodily function, right? You don't get to pick if your intestines can handle gluten. You don't get to manifest your destiny. You don't get to self-actualize. You don't get to, um, you know, do any of that. If you're celiac, you just avoid gluten. It's just a biological function. I need people to start thinking about mold avoidance more as a biological function. You get exposed to these certain types of molds, it disables your immune system, and it allows all of the other infections to proliferate. This is another thing that confuses Lyme patients. They're like, they're like, but but I but I took the Bartonella herbs or the Babesia herbs or the Borrelia herbs, and, and I actually did get a little better, Brian. So there must really be Lyme disease. It's not mold, it's Lyme disease. You are correct. After mold disables the immune system, it does allow those infections to proliferate. And you might benefit from treating the Lyme infections or the chronic fatigue infections. That is correct. That's why it's so confusing. Because those problems are real problems. Ticks ticks do carry Lyme disease. People do get infected with Lyme disease. And many people do get better by taking antibiotics. I don't dispute that. But for the people who don't get better or the people who it's a constant rat wheel or hamster wheel of getting a little better and then getting worse over and over and over again for years, we have discovered that the missing variable is mold. And it's not very hard to see how this could work either. Doctors already know that Lyme disease is a biotoxin illness. It's a biotoxin illness. Lyme disease produces biotoxins and that's what does the damage in the body. Mold produces biotoxins. So it's not hard to imagine that if your body is loaded with mold, like you have thousands of times more mold in your body than a normal person has because you can't detox mold, that it's going to mix with Lyme disease and they're both going to be a problem together, right? But the claim is that we don't need to do... Okay, so in my own personal story, I do not treat my Lyme disease anymore at all. I don't have Bartonella symptoms or Babesia symptoms or Lyme symptoms or any of that stuff anymore. Mold was the missing variable that allowed my body to get back on top of those infections, to dominate those infections and put them to sleep, put them into dormancy. Now, could those infections come back if I go back and live in mold? Yes. I've experimented with this a little bit. It's hard for me to experiment with it because it's like a celiac patient who... Um, intentionally exposes themselves to gluten over and over and over again to see how sick they get. When I go back into the bad kind of mold, I start getting all my warning symptoms that as an experienced mold avoider, I have learned to listen to those, but I have a couple of times ignored the warning signs. And for whatever reason, maybe I need to be in a certain location for business or something and all the warning bells go off and they keep going off for days and weeks and, and I'm fine. The Lyme disease doesn't come back until you finally hit a point where the immune system breaks down 
And there it is, Bartonella, Babesia, Borrelia, raising their hand to wave at you, saying, hi, I'm still here. I can come back if you're not careful. And there they are, if I let it go that long. And all of a sudden, guess what? The herbs for Babesia, Bartonella, when I, if I let myself go to that point, they might work for a week or two, and then they stop working. Gee, what do you know? Wow, interesting, they stop working. And then when I go back to my mold avoidance lifestyle, which by the way, I don't need to do nearly as much extreme mold avoidance as I used to do. I'm able to spend a lot more time in, you know, cities and places that I like, but I do stay away from those bad outdoor toxins. Soon as I go back to my safe locations and my safe city and my safe places, my safe house, the Bartonella and the stuff goes away without any herbs at all. Okay, now I'm going to end this here because it's way longer than I really like to make my podcast episodes. And if you're a skeptic, you probably don't even want to listen this long anyway. But this is not the whole story. I have focused on a specific part of the mold avoidance narrative that I haven't really touched on in other podcast episodes. Um, It would take me five hours to tell the whole story to a skeptic, right? Like you would hear things about how mold avoidance cured my chronic sinus infections that I had been dealing with for years and years. And, um, you know, doctors, I was desperate. It was horrible. I was in bed all the time with chronic sinus infections. You would hear about how mold avoidance cured a chronic bone infection that I had in my foot that doctors were thinking about, you know, amputating part of my foot because nothing I did, antibiotics, you know, whatever, got rid of this bone infection. Um, You would hear about how I used to do uh, bee venom therapy for Lyme disease, bee venom therapy. You know, it's very popular, sting yourself with bees. And it kind of kept me stable, was helpful on and off year after year. And then boom, as soon as I started doing mold avoidance, I didn't even need to do it anymore. Overnight, just gone, didn't need to do it. You would start to hear things about how all of my joint pain that I had with Lyme disease and dual Achilles tendon sprains and how my tendons never healed and my neck was always out and I was, you know, blind in one eye because of nerve pain and a pinched nerve, how that went away when I did mold avoidance. You would hear about all this stuff if if I was going to give you the whole story, but I, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to open your mind a little bit. If you are a skeptic, open your mind to what the possibilities are uh, and what, you know, some of the logic is behind mold avoidance. If you will not relinquish your skepticism without scientific evidence, meaning a $20 million university laboratory that tells you exactly what we're trying to avoid, I'm sorry to say I'm, I don't have any anything for you. Just like, you know, 10,000 years ago, if the caveman wasn't going to avoid black widow spiders without scientific evidence, he's not going to live very long, right? <clears throat> He sees his friend get bit by a black widow spider. His friend dies 10,000 years ago in a cave. And he says, well, that can't possibly be dangerous because there's no scientific evidence. So I'm just going to go jump into a nest of black widow spiders because there's no scientific evidence. Sorry, guys. And then he's going to die, right? You don't always have to have scientific evidence in order to know something is bad for you. And you know this, even if you're a skeptic, you know this, you have encountered things in your life that don't feel right, don't feel good. um, And you've avoided them intuitively. Maybe you got a bad batch of groceries, and you took a bite of a food, and it made you sick. And you're like, I got to throw that away. There's no scientific evidence for that. There isn't any, you just had a bad bite. And you decided, I got to throw this away, 
right? That's what humans do. They avoid things that are bad. And we already have many, many precedents throughout history where a singular substance turned out to be more important than people realized. Lead-based paint. Come on, guys. I could go on and on, right? Lead-based paint. Everybody thought that was ridiculous when people were getting sick and, you know, children were getting autism and developmental disorders from lead-based paint. And people laughed and made fun of them. Oh, your kid's probably fine. You know, it's not the paint chips, the paint flakes that are coming off your wall, right? There was no scientific evidence. But I bet you had a mother or two who observed that when they moved into a new house or an old house, in this case, lead-based paint, that their kid got sick, right? And, and you could make fun of that mother. You could ridicule her. You could say it's the placebo effect. You could say that um, it's, it's BS, right? But it wasn't BS. And now we know that lead-based paint is very dangerous and you can't even use it anymore. And I used to be a realtor. And if you sell a house that has lead-based paint, you have to disclose the heck out of it to the buyers. You have to make them sign all these disclosures that even if the lead-based paint was stripped away and taken out a long time ago, it's so bad the lead-based paint is so bad that even if it was stripped out and taken out and painted over and remediated, you still have to tell the buyers, hey guys, there was lead-based paint here and it's really dangerous. It's not just a little bit dangerous. It's not like cat cat dander or pine pollen. You don't have to disclose if there was a cat that lived there. You don't have to disclose if, there's al- if it's allergy season outside because there was a singular toxin in that house that's so bad that even if there's a tiny bit of it left over, it can hurt you. Celiac disease, it's the gluten is so bad that even a tiny bit can hurt you. That's the paradigm shift that happens during mold avoidance. And I promise I only have 30, 30 more seconds to wrap it up. That's the paradigm shift that happens during mold avoidance is mold ends up being for those of us who have healed with mold avoidance, not just another thing on the list to check off when you have Lyme disease or chronic fatigue syndrome. Checked off my hormones, checked off taking my supplements, checked off moving to a new apartment. Check the list, check, check, check. Mold ends up being the singular variable that makes all the difference that you would never even know about if you just did a little bit of mold avoidance. You just moved across the street to a new apartment and you think I'm totally fine and done. You have to do a lot of mold avoidance. Now, some people might not be very mold toxic and they might be okay with just moving across the street. That's fine. See, I'm not a fundamentalist, extremist, you know, religious, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not a radical, right? I'm not radicalized. I do know that some people only need to do mild to moderate mold avoidance. That's fine. I've talked to people like that. They're like, oh yeah, my Lyme disease went away when I got in a new apartment. Or, or all the Lyme disease treatments started to work fine. Great. That means that you did not need to do extreme mold avoidance. But that logically does not mean that your friend who has Lyme disease might be a lot sicker than you and might have a lot more mold in their body. The degree to which someone needs to do extreme mold avoidance is variable. It's totally variable. It depends on how much mold has damaged them and how bad their locations have been and probably a lot of other factors we don't understand. Just like the guy on the boat who maybe doesn't get become a limey and have the vitamin C deficiency sailing across the ocean and his friend does. Who knows? 
Maybe he ate a lot of oranges back home before he went on the trip and he never got scurvy. Finally, by the end of the podcast, I remember the name of the condition scurvy, right? Vitamin C deficiency. Who knows? Or maybe he's, his body's a little better at storing vitamin C so he can go on the journey and last longer. None of that changes the fact that many, many people were getting sick from vitamin C deficiency. You want me to end with something that'll really blow your mind? This will really blow your mind, all right? I did some research on this. They started sucking on limes on those ships before they even knew what vitamin C was. It was an accident. Someone just experimented with it, who knows how, and they were like, hey guys, if you suck on these limes, that's why they were called limeys, uh, as we sail across the ocean, um, you won't get sick. And they didn't know why. They didn't know what vitamin C was. Um, They just knew there was something in there that stopped them from getting sick, right? Think about that for a minute. Does that blow your mind? They didn't have a $20 million university laboratory to tell them um, that that was working and that it was a vitamin C deficiency. No, they didn't know any of that. They just did it because it worked. It's probably very likely that in two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, I don't know that a laboratory will confirm this mold phenomenon. And that'll be great. It'll be vindication and validation. But that doesn't mean that it isn't valid today by the miraculous results and healing that very, very sick people are experiencing. People who didn't get the placebo effect when they did all of those other things their doctor told them to do. So you can't say they're crazy and it's the placebo effect, right? Because they already did that, right? Like I wanted the placebo effect to work for me when I was doing hyperbaric oxygen, when I was doing herbs, when I was doing supplements, when I was doing energy work, when I was doing talk therapy, I wanted it to work. I was like, just get me out of this hell, this misery. I don't care if it's a placebo effect. I don't care if it works, whatever. It, it's, it's a singular effect of mold. And the thing I want to leave you with here <clears throat> is that the people who have to go really extreme in their mold avoidance journey, that is not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. Some people might get better going to an apartment, a new apartment, and that's good enough for them. Some people might need to go into a new city, a new region um, that doesn't have the outdoor mold supertoxins that they can sense is making them sick. It's a very individualized process, and it's very demeaning and insulting to you as the skeptic get to be the one to decide, right? Think about how arbitrary that is. A lot of skeptics that I talk to in the Lyme disease world, and and by the way, you guys, my podcasts are never this long, but this is so important that I'm fine with it being this long. I really do think this is a critical topic, but so many, just think about how irrational this is, okay? So many of the skeptics that I talk to, they won't say this, but it's ingrained in their thinking and the way they talk about it. They think that they get to be the arbiter or the decision maker, or the final word on how much mold avoidance is reasonable, right? Think about how unscientific that is. If you want to talk about skeptics and unscientific, they will say, oh, my son or my daughter can't possibly be suffering from mold anymore because we already had our house remediated or because our our house tested low for mold. The reason this is unscientific is because they're already acknowledging that mold is toxic. They're like, "We, we needed to test our house for mold. We needed to, right? But they're implying that science is far enough along to 100% 
rule out dangerous mold just with a test. Just with a test. Come on, guys. Testing is evolving every day, every year. The mold tests that we use now are different than the ones that we used six months ago, and they're different than the ones that we used two years ago. There's there's some new um, biological markers, blood markers that I've been reading about that are coming out of Europe for mold testing that are totally new. They're not even in the United States yet, and they're finding mold toxicity in people that um, that wasn't found in, in United States testing. And that's a brand new technology, right? It's not logical to say that you or I or me get to be the arbiter of how much toxic mold someone is reasonably allowed to take. This is one of those damaging things that um, a lot of mold avoiders have been had have been really hurt, traumatized, their feelings hurt by loved ones. When the loved ones say, you know, oh, well, you already did this amount of mold avoidance. Now you're just being crazy. You're just being silly. You're just being ridiculous. You don't need to do that. I mean, can you tell someone how much lead-based paint they should avoid before they get sick? Can you tell someone how much nuclear radiation causes cancer? Don't you, don't you see that there are some substances that we end up learning are much, much, much more damaging than we first realized they were? Um, one, I already told you guys that all of the experienced mold avoiders agree, right? Because we've already all been down this road. Another interesting thing that I have found with mold avoidance is that you have very educated people pursuing mold avoidance. Doctors, scientists, researchers. Um, it's not for stupid people. It's all walks of life are equally impacted. You know, you have the artists, you have the science people, you have the engineers. And because I'm in this field and I, um, you know, do podcasts, my podcast has like 30,000 downloads or something by now. I'm pretty well known in this field. I did not invent any of this stuff. Mold, mold avoidance is not my discovery, not my idea. I just have a desire to share it. And I get messages from very important people who are like, Brian, I've done mold avoidance it's healed me or it's healed my wife or my kid, but I can't talk about it because I work at the Berkeley particle accelerator lab and people would laugh at me and fire me from my job. Or I've done mold avoidance and I can't talk about it because I'm a doctor who lectures at a university and I would lose my job. I hear this, you guys. I hear it in my direct messages and I swear to secrecy and I tell, you know, and I won't, I'm like, okay, fine. I won't tell your secret. It's happening right now, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's happening. Mold avoidance is saving lives. It really is. And it's not easy. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect answer. I'm also not radicalized to think that it's going to solve all of your problems. Some infections may not go away perfectly. Many of us have, have acknowledged that we still need to do other work like, you know, fasting or detox or parasite cleanses or whatever. It's not a miracle. But Evidence has shown so far among many of us that it is a missing link, a single rabbit hole that goes very, very deep down when someone might be lost in a sea of different rabbit holes that they're trying, herbs and detox and 
you know, I forget what they are. <laughs> if you would have asked me 10 years ago when I was in the midst of writing Lyme disease books and going to all the conferences, oh my gosh, I could have rattled them off. I have one book that I wrote called The Top 10 Lyme Disease Treatments. I could have told you all 10 of them. And it wasn't lying. I wasn't scamming people or lying. Those were the top 10. That's what I, I went to all the conferences. I listened to the lectures. I learned. I tried them. I got a little bit of benefit. I was able to work my job just a little bit longer. That was it. That was as good as it got. The top 10 of the, of the day, of the era, right? But then the next year, it's a different top 10. And the next year, it's a different top 10. Just like the people on the boat crossing the ocean have t- their 10 little therapies that help them with scurvy, but none of them are the right real answer, right? Um, hang your head off the side of the boat, sleep in, sleep on your stomach, whatever, right? Like probably there's a lot of little things people could do that would make them feel a little better for a little while. That was what it was like in the Lyme disease world for me. Um, it was just a lot of little nuanced things that just kind of scratched the surface of helping people out, but never did the trick, never made the difference. And that's why I like making podcasts more than talking to individuals about this. First of all, I'm not a doctor, so I can't give medical advice. So I don't like talking to people in that regard. I'd rather just make content. But second of all, it's exhausting to undo the intellectual lies or intellectual untruths that people have swallowed, right? I'm literally dealing with, we, we, mold educators are literally dealing with people who think that the reason they their Lyme disease won't go away is just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And when they come to the table to talk about their mold avoidance or to get help or to go on the discussion groups and say, hey, here's my situation, they they might not tell you this. They might not admit it. But they already have formulated in their brain how much they think mold is hurting them. And they say, oh, well, I, I'm doing you know this level of mold avoidance already. And that should be enough, right? They've already made a decision in their brain what should be enough. You and I know that we don't know what should be enough lead-based paint. We don't know what should be enough nuclear radiation before somebody gets sick. <clears throat> we don't know what should be enough... Um, flour or gluten or, you know, gluten bread before someone gets sick. But these people come in with an idea of what should be enough mold avoidance and what other things they're doing. And they don't realize that the rabbit hole goes all the way to the bottom. (laughs) They don't realize that the rabbit hole goes all the way to the bottom. And um, you can't convince them because they've literally been indoctrinated into this for years and decades. So you cannot convince anyone about this. They have to experience it for themselves. They have to find out that there was an outdoor mold supertoxin in their neighborhood. They have to go camping or go to a hotel or something. They have to experience the improvement and they have to realize after six months or a year or two years of doing mold avoidance that they just keep getting better. And it doesn't just plateau and go away like all of the other ridiculous treatments that they were doing before. You can't convince someone they have to see it for themselves. It's kind of like, you know, like a blind person finally getting their sight back. Have you ever seen those videos of someone who's blind and a doctor finds a miraculous treatment to open their eyes and they see the world for the first time? And they say, they literally say things like, oh my gosh, people have been telling me for years how beautiful mountains are and trees and, and but I could never have imagined it was like this, right? That's the experience of mold avoidance. Um, because the body knows something is 
drastically wrong. That's why you get people crying in doctor's offices and bawling and begging for help and spending every last penny. The body knows there's something wrong. And when you remove that offense, it leads to a very blissful awakening and a very um, emotional and cathartic experience of finally after all of these years, finally, that burden has been removed. And it might not be perfect. And you might have to go back into mold toxins because you have to, it's wintertime and it's cold and you got to get shelter from the cold. And you might run out of money. I'm not saying I, I'm a master of the logistics, right? The logistics are challenging. Nobody's going to argue with that. But on a biological level, when the body experiences relief from this singular rabbit hole, it is a drastic and really amazing experience. That's all I have for you guys today. I hope this podcast has been helpful. Just a little reminder, I am not a doctor. I am not a licensed nutritionist. I'm not anything medical. I have been a healthcare journalist for 20 years. I've written books. Um, but everything I share in these podcasts is just my own personal research, personal experience, personal opinion. Do not construe this as medical advice. If you have any kind of medical problem, whether that's mold or Lyme disease or whatever, you need to see a licensed doctor, not listen to what I'm telling you. It's, it's not about me. I am just a messenger who is reporting on what I've learned from very many smart people. Hope you guys have a great day.